Winter Mead grew up on a maple syrup farm in New England. After writing his grad school thesis on technology trends in digital media, he relocated to the Silicon Valley to test his own theories. Now teaching about entrepreneurship and venture capital at the Stanford University Graduate School of Business, it's safe to assume his instincts were right on the money. With 20 years in financial services, Winter has invested over $1 billion across 80 private equity and venture capital firms during his time with Sapphire Ventures and Hall Capital Partners. And his firsthand experience led to two striking realizations. One, that capital was crucial for innovation and market disruption. And two, that the gap between casual investors and full-time VCs was only growing wider by the minute. Operator was born from the aspiration to bridge that gap. Winter and his co-founder, Welly Scully, set out to build a community to enable the next generation of institutional VCs. Join Winter as we talk about how LPs can succeed outside of the top 10 investment firms, unlocking capital and knowledge to create new fund managers, the network effects of a VC community. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. Running the leading startup community in Latin America costs money, but some people are taking notice. So I want to take a minute to thank our early supporters. At Viva Real, we were an early customer of Zendesk. Other companies like Nubank, Loft, RD Station, they all use Zendesk to keep their customers happy. Zendesk for Startups offers Zendesk software for customer service and sales for free for six months. To learn more, head to zendesk.com slash startups. Also, we're really happy to inform that Latitude Fellows now have access to a ton of extra exclusive benefits on top of the six months free, thanks to Zendesk's support of our community. Go to latitude.com to learn more about the Latitude Fellowship and apply. I learned the hard way that lo barato sale caro. If I had worked with Gunderson from the beginning, maybe our company wouldn't have had to pay $100 million in unnecessary taxes because of our corporate structure. We're lucky to have their support along with Kerry Olson and Bronstein Zilberberg in developing one of our first products, Latitude Go. We want the process of incorporating companies in Latin America to be 10 times cheaper and twice as fast. If you're starting a venture-backed company, you can check it out at go.latitude.com. I've been banking with Silicon Valley Bank for over a decade as one of their first customers in Latin America. They're committed to the region and have made great introductions over the years. We want to thank them for their support of Latitude. To learn more, visit svb.com. Now on to the episode. Welcome to the uh, Latitude podcast. Uh, it's great to have you on. Thank you for having me here. So got your book right here in the physical copy. I like to have the hardback. I also listened to the audiobook, which I really enjoyed that format as well. And so you wrote this book, How to Raise a Venture Capital Fund, The Essential Guide on Fundraising and Understanding Limited Partners. And what I liked about it, well, a couple things just kind of out of the gates here is I liked that it was just really like simple and clear language throughout and like thorough, but easy to read. There's a lot of startup books out there about the venture capital game. And so I'd love for you to just to give us a quick introduction on why you decided to write this book and why do you think nobody's really focused on the topic from the perspective of an emerging manager and an LP? Because I haven't couldn't find anything similar to that. Yeah, I think there are a few things. So uh, it's always been a dream to write a book. And I, I think I learned over the course of writing a book that writing it isn't the hard part. 
It's actually editing it and structuring it and making it accessible to your audience. That is the hard part. So I probably spent years thinking about just the structure of that whole process, right? Like if I were to coach someone through a fundraising process, would I be able to do it? And, you know, that was something that clearly was part of my day job for a number of years. Um, and then when I left Sapphire Ventures in 2018, like I, it became more of a reality of like, okay, I no longer have, right, like the golden handcuffs. How can I, like, am, am I going to be authentic if I'm trying to coach first time VCs, emerging VCs? into this journey of building their firms. Like, can I actually explain this process? And so like many things, like it was very broad, right? Like it was, you know, mile wide, inch deep, which was, which was just too broad. And so, you know, I had a good support system that helped me kind of think through just clarity of, you know, asking the simple questions, like, who do you want to help? Who's your audience? Um, and how accessible do you want to be? And you know, I did quite a bit of research in just on like VC in general, not just for this book, but just in general, just trying to be a, a, a student of the asset class. And there are other books out there, like they're kind of the the famous books out there that a lot of VCs read, mainly founders and VCs, like VCs to become better VCs, um, better investors, um, and founders to be better at negotiating, right? Like term sheets or like better negotiating with VCs or just to understand, have more context, right? Given they're, they're building something that's usually more specialized. They don't need to fully understand like the whole finance aspect of, of venture capital. And so those books did exist. And it seemed like the books that were coming out either, they fit into a couple of categories, maybe three categories. Um, the first category was more like, how do you build a business? Um, the second category was like, how do you become a VC or like, how do you, how do you invest? Like, what does that look like is kind of the founder GP relationship. And then maybe there's a third category here, which a lot of people don't probably get to unless they're studying like venture capital in grad school, which is like these textbooks that are very interesting, but they're just too dense for, to be relatable to like everyday person that's just trying to like solve problems that you're going to run into if you're getting, getting started. And so I think part of, part of what I saw was, you know, the VC world changing in a way that there are more people that weren't spinning out of like, you know, the 10 established VC firms that every institutional LP is going to invest into when, when they spin out, like there was this new class of VC and it was like, okay, well, how do I appeal to that person? Right. I'm, I'm sure other people read the book from those 10 firms as well, but I think it was trying to reach a broader audience um, and I even, you know, pitched a few people. I'm like, Hey, would you publish this? And the feedback was, this is super niche, which it is. Um, and under, that's understandable, but it's like, would you publish this? It was like, this is too niche of an audience. So it was kind of trying to find, I guess that balance of, okay, if this is already super niche, how can I strike the right balance and find an audience where it would resonate, where you don't just have to be raising a fund or coming from the VC world, but you could potentially be outside of that VC ecosystem. Like um, maybe it's outside of the bubble, maybe it's just outside of the VC ecosystem, but you're noticing VC becoming more of like a mainstream thing. And so I wanted to write a book that was accessible to people that weren't just already involved. And I think that's why it probably comes across as 
simple and clear because I was, I was intentionally trying to simplify it for people that I saw like that were coming into VC that needed to get smart quickly. And I wanted to, you know, the way I think is I try to help people at scale. And so it, it was kind of like marrying those two concepts, like simple and clear to reach an audience outside of VC and also be scalable. And that, that's kind of when, um, yeah, I got excited about uh, as like more words came onto the page, like excited about actually like this coming together. And I actually sat on it for two years, um, which I don't necessarily recommend. Like part of that was editing, but part of it was like, I was worried it wouldn't be helpful enough and it didn't quite meet my standards. Like I felt each one of those sections you could go much deeper into. Um, and so I think there's probably another balance where it's like, finally just get the book out and try to integrate some of these more nuanced concepts and some of the more you know, meaningful parts or complex parts of the fundraising process into you know, these programs I'm now running for, for venture capitalists. Yeah, I can really relate to that. Um, my process for writing a book, like you never feel really ready, right? And it's something that you kind of got to accept it at some point. Otherwise, you'll never get through it and you'll never get it out to the world. So I think you struck the right balance there. And uh, I mean, I found it super just like effective, like we have a, a small fund. And so it was, it was very useful for me to think through the, the thoughts. I want to just double click on the asset class a little bit and just get your perspective because for the audience that's listening, you've invested in a lot of funds. So you're come from you know, multiple sides and you really give a great LP perspective, which I think that it's a rare kind of perspective for people to get just because it's not really talked about a lot. And so historically, the, the VC game has been dominated by these larger funds. And there's kind of this virtuous cycle that happens when a fund invests in a huge winner like you know Google or Facebook, and then founders see that and they want money from those investors because there's this assumption that they're pretty smart. And this feeds this kind of network effect for the top performing funds with something that we can both agree on, right? Uh, I might attack the premise a little bit. I don't, I don't know if it's fully been dominated by like established funds over time, right? Like even, even like a, you know, not to name names, but you know, a Facebook investor fund that, you know, they had a certain reputation in the LP ecosystem. They were able to, you know, I think write that when Facebook became very valuable and, you know, I wasn't part of that inside story, but the way I've heard the story told was like, one company can effectively like save a firm. And so like, and if you think about, if you look at results, right, like if you jump back 20 or 30 years and you look at the top 10 or 20 firms um, by performance, like there is some turnover there. Like you will see firms that in today's market, like you won't even have heard the name. Um, Like maybe there aren't even investors that have like gone on to start their next firm or or rebrand. So I, I do think there's, turnover over time. And I might even, um, the second piece there is, I, I, I might say that there are emerging manager cycles. So, you know, you, you kick it off in whenever you want to put the start date on it. Maybe it's the early 70s, maybe, maybe it's earlier. But you have like firms starting up in the 80s that are still around, firms starting up in the 90s that are still around, firms starting up in the aughts, like the 2000s that probably people start to, uh, in today's market, you know, refer to as the uh, initial class of micro VC, right? Because there was this structural change in the cost of starting a business and therefore like fund sizes could be smaller to address 
like market scale opportunities, like, you know, technology VC scale opportunities. And so I think that was probably the start of this new wave of funds that again, like hadn't existed in a, in a VC market that wasn't like that had already been around for 30 or 40 years or more at that, at that point in time. Um, and so I think, you know, I think there's always these waves and it's like the market now has changed where emerging managers, emerging VCs, fund formation has become easier, like barriers are down. Like it, it's not necessarily another fundamental shift in like the cost of starting a business that leads to like changes in fund sizes. But I think it, it's something different. It's probably like lower barriers to entry for actually starting a fund. Um, you have like a, a multitude of training grounds, right? Like these VC firms that are training junior principals and partners um, that then want to strike out on their own after you know five or ten years of you know building a track record at those firms, you have more transparency in the ecosystem, right? Like it's easier to share information in, t- in today's day and age. So you have more of an ability, like you said, like you're able to go very deep and research on the internet, um, and you don't necessarily have to be in Silicon Valley or at Route 128 to really like go deep on what it means to be a VC investor. And again, like I said, like the literature that's already out there, that's like positioned differently from this book is you know, you have the access and the literature out there that allows you to learn how to become a VC. And then there's these training grounds and then there's this, all this online information. So the barriers to entry and the information transparency, like barriers to entry are lower, information transparency is greater. Um, but I think that allows for more people to get into the space and start learning about VC and start building track records. I still think, um, you know, where I kind of sit on this topic right now is like, it's easy to start a firm. It's hard to scale a firm. And so I, th- I think there's been a lot of uh, infrastructure and, um, and kind of learning that has, that, that has been like the VC ecosystem being built over you know, the last half century that um, a, a lot of emerging VCs are trying to learn. And I think the good ones become students of that and realize you know, why is the GPLP relationship a certain way? You know, why are funds structured a certain way? And they can appreciate like the the kind of um, meaning behind some of these structures and they and, and some of these uh, alignment mechanisms and and therefore those people I think are the ones that um, in my view are kind of you know uh, at the forefront of being the next generation of institutional VCs and for operator that's kind of where I usually intersect with uh, with VCs but. I want to double click on the operator and the the training grounds because I think that you're building that and I want to dig into that in a second. I guess just to kind of recap a few things, it sounds like everything you described is highly analogous to startup life, right? Like the more information available, the less friction to start something. I think those descriptions also fit like kind of where we are in startup land in terms of getting a company going too, right? I mean, it sounds, you could replace the word fund and put startup there and I think it would also apply. I think that's absolutely right. And so Thinking about the parallels there, like where I operate, it's the pre-seed seed world and where most institutional LPs play, like they need a certain level of traction already, right? So yeah. they, like the, the, the framework exists and the parallels exist. Um, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Do you feel like multi-stage is becoming more common? Like I've talked to more friends recently and it's this kind of general wisdom that you'd be a pre-seed fund or in a seed fund and then maybe later on you'd scale up. Um, are you seeing more funds just like go across the stack now? And is that is that becoming more acceptable to LPs to like have a fund where you're investing in seed and series B? Or is that 
still like not very digestible for most LPs? I think it's it's hard hard to answer that question. So I think there's a there's a few things in there. I think focus for an emerging manager is very important. So if you're trying to invest across the stack as an emerging manager, um, maybe you can do it, but I think it requires an exceptional person or an exceptional team. Um, I think it's become more, that's one point, I think it's become more commonly accepted to invest into more stages in venture capital, right? Like before, maybe if you're at, maybe this is wrong, but if you're at series D, E, F, and then you go public, right? You go public a lot earlier 15 years ago than you do today. So, right, like this is the whole, you know, private IPO. You know, that round has been extended for multiple rounds now. So there's just the ability, uh, the way venture capital works to invest into more rounds. And therefore, like there's the ability for um, bigger firms, sometimes people call those multi-stage firms, to invest into more stages late, later on. Um, but I, I don't see it like I think it's a case by case basis. Like you were touching on earlier, like established firms, like they've created network effects. That's true. Like they've been able to stay in business sometimes for decades. And you stay in business by understanding like what your fun product is, what you're good at. But you also stay in business because you've delivered performance to LPs and therefore you build trust with LPs and you're able to like introduce new fun products to the market. And sometimes those fun products involve you know, taking advantage of pro rata rights or investing into growth rounds. And, you know, you think about as the managing partner, like your growth trajectory as a firm. And if you want to scale and you have greater ambitions than just, you know, managing an early stage fund, like sometimes you will grow into, you know, a multi-stage platform with various fund products. Um, and you can do that because again, like you've built, like you've delivered that track record of performance and you've built that trust with LPs. And therefore when you bring a new fund product to the LPs, they, you know, they can, understand, underwrite you like a lot faster and really understand like, do you have the relationship with the founders? Do you have the access at, at, at this stage? And so I think it, it doesn't happen overnight. But yeah, I think some of those people that have proven they've built trust with founders, they've delivered performance to LPs. Like I do think those people, and they're ambitious, like I do think those people think about scaling up and that usually plays out near term as like I have an early stage fund and a pro rata fund or a growth stage fund. But over time, like it can turn into you know some of the uh, multi-strategy platforms we're seeing today, like Sequoia and Andreessen and Bessemer and others that you know they've proven over many decades. Um, at least in the case of Bessemer and Sequoia, Andreessen's a little bit younger as a firm, um, but they've proven that you know they can deliver performance to LPs. They can build trust. They can execute on you know strategies that they said they're going to execute on, and I think that allows them to you know, have some flexibility when it comes to introducing new strategies and, be, and becoming more um, multi-stage in their, in their investments. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, out of the gates, like a startup, you don't try to build a bunch of stuff out of the gates. You need to build your kind of beachhead product. You need to gain customers. And then you can expand the kind of the vision of what you're doing as you prove and you know, get traction and, and scale. So I want to um, talk a little bit more about what you've recently launched, Operator, for those that don't know, it's the, the YC for emerging fund managers. It's funny. I had a call this morning with a friend of mine. He runs a fairly large fund in LA. And he's like, man, that's such a good idea. Like, I, I feel like I thought of that idea. But a while ago, I knew someone would do it eventually. And here you are building it. So how did you come up with the idea for Operator? Yeah, the idea is not new. Um, I think it's been around for probably at least 10 or 15 years 
before it was started. I think what's changed is how many funds are being formed. And I think what's also changed slightly at the cultural level is this willingness to um, ingest more information from the LP's perspective, right? Like um, the phrase money, money behind the money, or, you know, where does a venture capitalist money come from? Like that was always like a hidden world um, for many, many decades. Like um, people knew, but they didn't fully know. And I think the the craft of venture um, has become important. Like the more people think about, oh, I, do I want to build a firm over multiple decades? Or is there a playbook to actually like understand in a comprehensive way the pieces I need to put into place in an accelerated fashion, right? And so I think it, maybe maybe that means like it had to come from an LP building it, like someone that had sat on LPACs, had seen like this process, uh, did understand the LP perspective. Like, how do you underwrite a fund? How do you do that due diligence? Like, what are the pieces of due diligence that you need to understand? Like there's underwriting the performance, but there's also underwriting the operations, right? And understand and underwriting the actual terms and, and the legal partnership you're going into with this VC. Um, and there's a lot of dimensions there that I just think were, were, Kind of, they were known by managing partners at at very successful firms, but it wasn't super known by emerging VCs. And um, it just kind of thinking about the incentive alignment of like who who was incentivized to actually like bring this to the market, right? Like it wasn't established VC funds. Um, it wasn't necessarily LPs because like they had their existing sourcing channels and existing portfolios. So I think it required um, a bit of like an entrepreneurial mindset to say, okay, this can be turned into um, potentially a, a business, like and 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 how to grow that. Like it is, I think it is like a, a startup challenge, like trying to grow this thing and like build this community. Um, but I've been fortunate because the you know VCs that have come through so far, like they're very community oriented, like they're great investors already. They aspire to be great fund managers. Um, to build very aligned institutional VC firms. Um, and because they're community-oriented, like they give back and they help make this an easier lift. So it's not just one person trying to build uh, like this um, you know, monolith that, that people have to look up to, but it's a community of people that are contributing to the success of other community members. And so I think that, that network effect that grows cohort over cohort is I think what's building... A lot of value of what operator is now. So the the idea was create some structure um, that was very helpful. In this case, it was like a comprehensive curriculum of how to build a VC firm, and then manage that well. And sometimes it does come down to being like an executional challenge. Like it's very difficult to run this well and to actually like put in the time, the effort, um, put in like actually manage the curriculum and actually have this thing try to like deliver meaningful results and impact to emerging VCs. Like it is a full-time business thing. And so I think if the idea was created in the past, no one wanted to run it as a full-time business. They wanted to think of it as like a side project for an existing LP shop, or they thought of it as like a good idea. But when they started to explore like what you actually needed to put in place to, to run this as, a, as an impactful platform, like they, they may have quickly realized that there's a lot of pieces, like a lot of moving pieces to making this, making this work. For example, 
you know, I'm about to launch the third cohort in a week and a half, um, knock on wood. Um, and like, I've talked with over at least over 150 funds in the last eight weeks. Um, and so if you think about, and I do two references on every fund that gets qualified from there. So if you think of just like the sheer number of calls you have to do in like an eight week period, um, sometimes up to 20 or 30 calls a day um, with different folks, like that's not for every person. Like you kind of have to have a little bit of um, a willingness to do that um, to be able to figure out like, you know, from this, you know, uh, wide array of new funds, like who cares about aligning long-term and building an institutional VC firm and finding that alignment and bringing them into the cohort, right? Like creating a cohort bait, like a successful cohort based model, um, is very tough. Just inviting people into a Slack group is not as hard. Um, it's common, but it's not as hard. Like, again, it's a lower barrier to entry than actually performing like an initial layer of LP due diligence before you bring someone into a group with the expectation that they're going to go through like an eight-week intensive program uh, that's built to be like a comprehensive curriculum to help them understand how to build a VC firm. Like it's just, there's a lot there. And so I think it requires like a certain level of commitment and management that may not, that may um, not have existed in the past. So other people could do this. Like I would encourage other people to try to do this because like I do think having more smart managers that are very helpful to founders um, is a good thing in the ecosystem. So if other people want to try to create this, like that is a good thing because they're helping make the lives easier of people that are being very helpful to founders and making their lives easier, right? So there's kind of that butterfly effect going on. And so you know, it's, it's um, obviously I want operator to be successful, but it, it is kind of this realization that you know, this is hard to do and it requires a community to do it and people to be aligned behind like the mission of like what's trying to be built. And I think if you can find those people, like it just becomes slowly easier, but it does become, you know, easier over time. And so, um, yeah, it's not, not a new idea. Like I can't take credit for it for being a, um, like a, you know, an epiphany or anything, but it's, um, yeah, I mean, maybe it's not a new idea, but no one has really consolidated this, right. You described as the YC of emerging managers and like, you can't point to another organization that's like built an education platform in a community, at least to my knowledge. So maybe I'm less versed in the space, but, and it's like, to your point, the community aspect, the cohort, I talked to a few of the people that went through your program. And one of the first things they said is like, yeah, it's like you find your tribe and people are helping each other. And that's the spirit of a community is where the rising tide lifts all boats. And it seems like that was really at the core and the essence of what you've built. Yeah, it was the people that came into the first cohort that taught me that like community was going to be at the center of this. Like it was obviously in the back of my mind, like when it started, but it was really like their encouragement that made me realize like the power of network effects within community are much greater than any result I could potentially try to deliver as like a single person, right? Or even a team of people like at a single organization. And so I think like that, that had to come, I just think through, um, you know, the, the motions and actually, actually doing it. But now that I understand that it's how to create the mechanisms to enable the community, right? Where understanding, like finding people that have that orientation, like that helps drive results within the community, and that's leading to 
again, like impactful results, like leading to actually meaningful, um, you know, leveling up of managers that come into this community, which is, which is powerful. Cause then it means like, ideally it's, um, ideally it doesn't require a single person at the center, right? Like that, that just, that just sounds burdensome for all time. Like ideally you want to create like this enable, like this enablement to allow people to come in and have this self-subsistent, that's a word, community that allows people to like, you know, feed off of each other and like grow together. And uh, there's a lot of like thinking that goes on behind that. Like what are the systems you have to put into place? How do you actually do that? What's the right culture you have to create? But I think if you can, then that's a lot of management that goes into that. But like, if you can do that, like you actually start to have like, yeah, uh, maybe what you're hearing in these, these calls with, with managers that have gone through the program, you start to, you start to, you know, get excited about joining this community. You, you, you're excited about being part of this community, right? Like you really enjoy actually showing up. It's like, it can be a slog. And so if, if I'm sorting for the founder VC mentality, like it's just very tough for founders sometimes, right? Like, especially the early days, like people, you get no so much. It's such like a mentally taxing thing. And so if you can, when you find your tribe, it's like, if you can find a place that you like going to, right? And the people there are, you know, you can, you can feel that underlying emotion of excitement. Like, yeah, this is why I did that, right? Like, these are great people that I'm around. If like, you can find that, then yeah, you can actually find your tribe and people that want to help each other. And again, like it takes the burden off of them a little bit, right? It makes their day a little bit brighter. Um, and it makes them ideally over time, like you get enough of those iterations, like it makes them accelerate their success, which is ultimately like why I think there's going to be meaning in this, uh, in this community over time. No. And then the, the other secret to this is when you actually help someone else, there's like a lot of learnings, right? It's like when I'm talking to founders and I'm giving founders advice and then I, like they ask me smart questions and then I have to think about it and then I articulate my thoughts. And then I'm like, actually, I'm going to kind of synthesize that and that's going to be useful for other people and makes me think about my own journey. And so that's another secret to like community is that like the more you give, the more you get. Yeah, that resonates. Like I love the unconditional give and I recognize like who did that even in the early days of like starting this thing, right? Like it, like it seems maybe obvious now, but it's, you know, three years later. Um, so it, it wasn't obvious at the beginning. And like, just that, that, that's what gets, that's what inspires me and like gets me excited is like, there are people out there, Silicon Valley, like attitude or otherwise that actually just care about like giving first unconditionally in a state of ambiguity that allows for with, with, you know, they probably will come back to them and maybe there's some underlying expectation, but like they don't need it, right? They just know that this is a really interesting engagement. And if I give into it, um, there could be things that like come out the other side. Um, I think if you structure intention around that, like this is a very intentional community, like it's founder VCs who are trying to build, you know, LP aligned institutional VC firms. Like, so there is intention behind it. But yeah, I think the people that come in and kind of, uh, the, like, they don't know everything, right? So they, their ego isn't so great that they say, like, I know everything and, like, this isn't going to be helpful. But they say, like, hey, I'm really good here. 
and I think I know that, but I might not be as great here. So here's where I'm really good at. And then someone else says, well, I'm actually like, you know, the opposite of that. So, you know, they can pair up and again, like they level up over a conversation. Like, and so that requires, I think, intention behind the community. It also requires management on uh, the part of me and other people that are helping, you know, manage this program now to be able to like think of those connections, right? In real time. It's like, what is the problem you're solving? The problem you're solving generally is firm building. Like it's not the operator program isn't teaching uh, people how to invest. It's like finding high potential investors that are pre-institutional and bringing them into a community. And they're all aligned behind like helping each other and, you know, sometimes that requires um, people to know what each person is thinking and um, what they're doing and, you know, where their strengths are and where their weaknesses are and making sure, like, you can actually enable some of those network effects. Um, I think that that requires um, understanding of the people that are coming into your community, um, but it leads to, you know, from my experience so far in the first two cohorts, like, some interesting results where you're structuring in serendipity, like you're enabling serendipity and not necessarily requiring it to, you know, happen in a conversation with a mentor or for you to think of something that you should be working on yourself, right? Like constantly going through self-evaluation because a lot of these teams are super small. You're not always thinking about like all of your shortcomings. So if you can get some of that objective perspective or have other people in an encouraging environment, um, like in a constructive environment, like help you think through some of those things. Again, like it, it seems like it's leading to some interesting early results, like across the community. You articulate it really well. And it's at the heart concept behind what we're building at Latitude for founders. So like everything you say really resonates with me also, because it describes how we treat our community of founders. It's like the exact same ethos. So that's really cool. Um, you wrote a book, I also wrote a book and, you know, you don't write a book to make money as we both know, particularly on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. If anything, that's if true. anything. Yeah. What's the ROI like hours put in? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if anything, like your, your per hour basis, you know, you're, you're for those that don't know and think yeah. that you write a book and then you get a book deal, like that's, it's just not how it goes. But it was a smart idea because I mean, like I literally found you because I found the book because I was interested in the topic. And you also, it helps you become a thought leader, right? I mean, you're already very established within the LP community because you have a lot of experience, you have a reputation, and you have a pretty large network. So you're already a thought leader. But when you put a book out there, obviously, it allows you to kind of even expose your thoughts more, build value for the readers, and then build trust. And it allows you to kind of support what you're building. Talk a little bit more about the profile besides those give first mentality operators. I've got the gist of what you look for, but what other kind of profiles do you look for in these emerging fund managers? I think that's it. I mean, I think those are two separate things. Like I, I wrote the book to help all VCs, right? So it wasn't like I was trying to use it as a marketing tool to attract a certain type of uh, emerging manager. I basically thought I had, you know, a perspective here. You know, I thought a lot about the structure and, and what would be helpful to you know, a first-time fund manager, and I kind of just put it out um, again, not fully knowing, yeah, not not expecting to get rich off the book deal. Um, still, still waiting for that. <laughs> probably, probably not going to come anytime soon. Um, I, I think it was more like, can I be helpful to the community? 
Um, I think it was less about establishing myself as a thought leader. Like I really don't think about the world that way. It was more like this is this is a specialized skill set that is um, will be helpful to managers who want to get into business, who um, in some cases like should be in business and are going to be very helpful to the ecosystem. And I'm not going to be able to like individually help everyone myself. So scaling, yeah, it wasn't like scaling your reach is scaling your, your, your knowledge. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it turns out like it, it does lead to quite a bit of inbound, which is, you know, helpful for, for what I'm building, but it, um, it, yeah, it, it was more, this probably isn't like the only time I'll put out something that it is kind of, in that vein of, you know, how do you, cause I mean, there's two pieces here, right? Like just speaking candidly, like there's the giving back, like building, um, you know, yes, your own reputation, but also like a niche in an ecosystem, um, that's actually differentiated and helpful. Um, and then there's also like, you have to build a business within that. Right. And I think you need to respect both of those pieces. And like the book isn't a business, like again, like you said, right? Like it, 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 it's more. How do you kind of take the pieces that are going to be those fundamental building pieces and are going to help people ideally uh, understand the process a little bit more, create more alignment in the early days? Um, there's still going to be that difference, like I mentioned earlier, right? Like it's easy to start a fund; it's hard to scale one. So there's still like you know a version 2.0 of the book, or there's a deeper layer to everything that's in the book that you really need to figure out and understand and internalize and operationalize as you're building your firm. But that's, that's equally important. It, it doesn't have to come on day one, but I think it will become equally important and people will realize the, the value of going deeper in like all of these different topics and really internalizing these different topics as they run through a fundraising process or as they build over fund one, fund two, fund three. Um, and so, yeah, if I could write you know, more books I would. It's about carving out the time and, and being, uh, I think, in, intentional about what you want to talk about. Like, where, where is the next most value-added um, piece of the equation that isn't, like, talked about? Like, I'm not, I'm not into doing things for doing things' sake. Like, I'm into doing things if there's a gap in the market and it can be helpful to people and it can also, like, be helpful at scale. Oh, and to be clear, this book is useful for anyone in the venture world, like, or not even, I mean, it just even understand the asset class, like it's so clear and how you describe it kind of transitioning from there, this podcast, most of our listeners are either connected to Latin America, investing in Latin America, our founders, our VCs, our GPs uh, or LPs of, of funds. So Latin America is relatively new to the venture capital asset class. When I was a founder, I went out and, to raise money in 2010 was like, it was very, very difficult. There wasn't a lot of, of funds. And when I think about the LPs, when I think about these families, there's obviously lots of different types of LPs. So we won't go into the whole, everything you cover around, you know, endowments and pension funds and that whole kind of group of, of investors, but high net worth individuals and family offices, Latin America, there's a, an astronomical amount of wealth that's been generated in traditional businesses and how would you advise those families uh, used to making these like massive dividends through real estate uh, investments or highly lucrative companies? How would you encourage them to think about the asset class? Yep. So I'm not a financial advisor and uh, free advice. <laughs> so worth, worth what you pay for it. Um, sure. But I, 
I, th- I think I see this happening more and more. So taking a step back, like there is, there is a difference between the established VC class and the emerging VC class, right? There's also a difference between the established LP class and the emerging LP class. And I think like if you start to see it from that parallel, like there's this learning curve that LPs have to go through to really understand what they want from their own investment strategies. Um, and once they sort of realize that, right, like everyone has investment objectives um, and they have to form an investment strategy around that, once they have that, then they also need a skill set to uh, go after those investments. If it's investing into emerging VC fund, it's underwriting that fund manager. And how do you do that? And so what I've noticed is, you know, this interesting, again, I don't know if class is the right terminology, but this interesting group of LPs that are becoming more interested in VC as VC has grown from, again, a specialized part of alternatives and a specialized part of um, world-class LPs portfolios to a more mainstream part of alternatives and mainstream part of, you know, world-class LPs portfolios, right? And and maybe that's driven by a a rise in net asset value. Um, Maybe it's driven by the success of of VC and some of those more established VCs. So they become a larger part and kind of, if you're an LP, like who do you look up to, right? If you're a VC, like who do you look up, up to? If you're an LP, who do you look up to? And like, who do you follow in terms of strategies, right? It's like how many people kind of invest in the vein of Warren Buffett um, or, right, like it's how many people invest in the vein of the Yale Endowment or the Stanford Endowment or the Harvard Endowment and, like, how are they building out their portfolios, right? And so maybe there's some of that going on where if you sort of know that you want to invest into alternatives and you look at what that portfolio composition is over time, like VC is taking up more share. And so maybe, you know, as you think about your own portfolio, it becomes more interesting. But I also think, again, like it's driven by transparency and accessibility as well. So you, you start to see these opportunities that cross your desk. If you're a family office, like usually the ones, at least I talk to, I haven't talked to all of them, but the ones I talk to, like, do have a high velocity of deal flow. Like it's not, that's not their problem, but, um, or their challenge, but sometimes it is being able to evaluate funds at scale or have that internal resource that's good at reviewing fund investments or good at reviewing co-investments. And so I think sometimes it's a structural challenge to be able to, you know, uh, dig a little deeper into things that, you know, sound interesting, but you don't necessarily have the resources to underwrite it and do the diligence on it just yet. So, um, yeah, advice, I don't, I don't know if I have any, um, I think perspective, uh, you know, diversification is obviously something that comes up a lot. I think, um, thinking about it from a strategic lens is another thing that comes up a lot. Um, thinking about it from a mission driven lens is another thing that comes up a lot, uh, with family offices. Um, sometimes there's a difference in preferences between generations. So if you have a multi-generational family office, um, sometimes, you know, a different generation will have a different uh, take on what they think is valuable, um, and they'll go after different parts of the market or you know, kind of newer trends in 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 the technology world, um, and that usually plays into investing into early stage venture capital. Um, so, yeah, I think it requires like understanding 
why you're going into venture in the first place, um, really understanding whether it's a fit for your own strategy, whether it actually offers diversification, because um, it sounds like it's you know a, a different group in in Latin America, but in the U.S., like I know a lot of family offices that have made their wealth in technology, and so they think about diversification in a different way. Like it's not into technology; it's actually sometimes away from technology into you know other other asset classes. And so in, in this case, like it feels like the alignment would be diversification into technology, but also um, alignment with a strategy that um, you know if it could fit some of their business objectives or fit some of their return objectives um, as they build out their portfolio, then it could be, it could be a good fit. But yeah, I do think there is like a, um, a, a need for more understanding of how to evaluate on a broad-based basis, you know, what's going on in early stage venture, how to benchmark across that to really understand like what the when LPs say, like, you know, needs to meet the bar, like what is the actual bar like you don't get it from meeting five venture funds, right? You get it from meeting hundreds of venture funds and understanding like, and having a perspective that you've honed over time, which is your investment judgment that like building up that. And then like, you can kind of say, it's not the first five funds I meet that I want to invest into because, you know, it's a good pitch. It's, oh, these are the factors I should be looking at that actually make a great fund investment or, or at least have historically like that there is a pattern there. Um, and this aligns with what I'm trying to achieve with my investment objectives, then I should potentially like go in and, and therefore it feels like it's more, more aligned holistically at that point. Um, and it's less like opportunistic because what I fear is you'll have new LPs coming into the space and maybe they're investing in some, into some of these frontier technologies. Maybe they're investing into underrepresented managers and all of a sudden like they get you know, burned in the first couple of investments, like they don't make the money they were expecting, you know, or they don't hit the return objectives they were expecting. Um, and then they are just fearful of the asset class for the next couple of decades, right? I think, um, is there the ability to I've create perspective there? I've seen that happening quite a bit. No, I was just going to say that one of the challenges is some of these like wealthier families. One, there's an education piece, right? Because if you have, if you own like a massive conglomerate in Colombia or something, you're also not used to buying minority stakes in companies. So sometimes they'll just go directly in the company and buy 50% of the company, thinking that's a venture capital investment when really that's not. And then the founder will lose motivation. I've seen that happen multiple times where like the first investor. So going directly into a company one where they should just be probably investing in funds initially learning. And then the other side of the coin is I've talked to funds that are new to the asset class and I'm a little bit hesitant to bring them on as LPs because there's an education piece where I'd rather have LPs that educate me than, than, you know, (laughs) than have to like spend the time to like explain that what a venture that they're burning capital for this much. And then they've got to get market share because if you're used to running, owning a beer company that they have like certain unit economics on your beer and it's like very clear, it's, highly profitable, you might not understand the whole venture game where you've got to like dominate and then you're you know able to increase pricing over time or whatever your, your strategy is. So I think it's a challenging thing for newer LPs entering the asset class. Yeah, that, that resonates. I, I do think it's a bit of a dance and um, you know, this is a slightly elitist phraseology, but you know, when I was investing into Europe, 
some VCs would describe it as like the Silicon Valley mentality of investing, right? Again, like I think it's kind of it's kind of a weird way to describe it, but it what it means is exactly what you're saying. So I, I think the the meaning is more important than the the phrasing. And the meaning was, yeah, you can't own too much of the business. Like you have to strike the right balance and understand that this, if it works out well, it'll be a hyper growth opportunity. There will be additional opportunities to invest, but you want to keep everyone motivated, right? It's creating the right, like VCs are specialists in, in, in some way of creating the right incentive structure over time to get the buy-in of other investors and the founding team and like people that are joining the company, right? Like there is this kind of dance that goes on over lots of rounds as you prepare for an exit um, that you need to keep everyone motivated. Because like if the pie is bigger, there's more pie to go around for everyone. And if you aren't able to keep the incentive structure there, like especially if you take too much in the beginning, like you're saying, and you know, you, you, yeah, just create this diffidence in the founding team, like that's not great. Um, that, that is not the venture model. The venture model is finding alignment between the founder and the GP and like scaling up as fast as you can, you know, once you find, uh, you know, a good solution to something. One last question, you know, we've seen this explosion of venture capital funds, uh, create, I don't have the numbers, so this is anecdotally from me, but you probably have some of the data, but there's more of a long tail and it's the rise of more solo capitalists, that seems to be at the heart of it. If you had to boil it down to three things, you would evaluate as an LP looking at investing in an emerging fund manager, what would those be? Yeah, I, I see the, I'll answer the question in a second. I see the data being like, I think the buzzy thing is talking about the rise of solo GPs. Like I, I do see that being a functional part of the ecosystem going forward. But when I look at the data, and I've probably reviewed over 700 funds now since last September, um, so in, in a year, um, and it, it, there, it is divided. It's not like most are solo GPs. It's probably 40, 40, 20, where like solo GP, two-person team, you know, multi-GP, like, you know, more than, more than two, two people on the, on the founding team. Um, so there still is diversity there in terms of like how many people are running emerging managers. And, and this is mostly U.S. data, so it might, might differ in, in other parts uh, internationally. Um, but, but yeah, I think you're totally right. Like the, the point stands, fund formation is very great right now, maybe, maybe the greatest it's ever been. Um, you know, I wasn't around during the dot-com, so can't, can't speak to that time, but it is the greatest ever since I've been in the business for the last 10 years. And I think you're right. Like you are seeing this rise of the solo investor where before um, the, I think, commonly accepted belief was that having a partnership was helpful because you could kind of, you know, play the tennis game back and forth of, you know, um, talking about a opportunity and, you know, figuring out like, is this the right thing? Like, you know, give me a different perspective and let's talk about it and think about it from that perspective. But now the speed of the market actually being a solo GP is, um, if again, like assuming you have the right investor judgment is actually like viewed upon more positively. It's like you can move at the speed at which the market is moving. So maybe if the market slows down a little bit, like we'll go back to a place where like the, like solo GPs play a little bit less of a, a prominent role but I think now, just given the dynamics of the market, like it actually creates like um, a structural advantage. 
Um, I think the three things, like I think the actual question, uh, the three things like you actually are looking for to evaluate as an LP and an emerging manager, and maybe it's in this market. So maybe my answer would change in uh, six or twelve or you know uh, however many months. Um, the three things would be like reputation, track record, and relationship. Like I, I think it still boils down to that. Um, and that's maybe a tough pill to swallow for some emerging managers because like, well, how do I build this relationship if I can't even get in front of an LP just to start the relationship, right? Um, so I think um, like, how do I tap into these different ecosystems? But like reputation is important, like building a brand um, in this market, rising above the noise, like creating signal around yourself, um, creating a reputation of, again, like not founder friendly. I don't, I don't fully know what that means, but like being a good asset to founders over time, building your reputation as an investor and like standing for something, right? So when an LP asks like, why you, you have a good answer and like you, your reputation backs that up. Um, track record, that's always table stakes, right? Like I think if you were to survey a hundred LPs, like what are their top three things? Like everyone should say track record. And if they're not, then they just have a, they're not looking for returns. They're looking for something else. And so there is that need to build a track record in whatever way possible. And that for me doesn't mean like you, again, like you have to be the 15 year spin out from an established VC, but that means like you have to have the reps and, and the iterations and the thinking and the thoughtfulness around, you know, what it means to invest, what it means to be an investor. How do you hone your investment and judgment? Um, That requires a lot of like thinking, you know, introspectively, but also objectively um, around like, you know, how good are you? What, what is the access you have? Like, what is like your, like, how does your strategy align with the track record you're trying to build? Like all of that has to like be authentic to like you and kind of what you're doing. Um, and so like the track record, um, sort of has to speak for itself over time, but initially it has to be like very in line with your strategy and very in line with like you being able to have that initial competitive advantage when you go to market. And then thirdly, like on the relationship side, Again, this is probably table stakes, um, and different people I think would define this differently. Um, but how do you actually build a relationship, right? And it it was funny. I was talking with someone today, and I was trying to help him, and he was trying to help me, and we just got into this game of like who can help each other, <laughs> and like we weren't asking the other person for anything, but we were just like. And I was thinking about it after you know we ended the call, and I was like, that was really that made me feel good, you know, because like. It, he could have gone. He could have tried like a different tack, and I'm sure he was like very smart in like how he was thinking about like obviously building the relationship. I've known him for this wasn't our first call, but like it was just a it was just a funny back and forth where sometimes if you get into a very aggressive like fast paced market, like you kind of lose sight of the relationship aspect. Like I'm even guilty of this sometimes. But I think if you can take a step back and realize like yeah, what does it mean to build a meaningful relationship over time and try not to lose sight of that over time. Like that to me is very important. And a lot of LPs, like I said, family offices in particular, which it sounds like a lot of your audience is family offices. Like, you know, they don't want necessarily want to be pitched to 30 times a week, right? Like, like they're, they have their own preferences and objectives and, you know, their own alignment they're looking for. So it's like, how do you actually give first or like build a relationship that, doesn't feel like it's just the focus on the transaction. I think that's the key part of finding like LPGP alignment, like in the in the fun world. Um, and I'm sure that uh, would resonate both with like 
GPs that are long-term oriented and like LPs that are looking to find like great people to establish long-term partnerships with. So yeah, the reputation track record and relationships. I think on the relationship piece, I think that VC should inherently know this because they value the relationship with the founder too. So it's like it transfers over. Like no one wants, you know, a lot of these hot deals fly up to Silicon Valley and you're like just shopping price. Like that annoys a lot of the investors because they're like, I kind of want to like build a relationship. So I think intuitively they should know that if they're kind of aware of that. But I like the trifecta of reputation. That's obviously critical in, in doing business with anybody. Well, listen, this has been super enjoyable. I, I uh, The book, uh, How to Raise Venture Capital Fund, it's a good guide is what it is. And it's, uh, you know, if anyone is listening that's thinking of starting a fund or curious more about the asset class or just wants to kind of peel back the the onion on all this stuff, it's got a lot of great detail. So thanks for making the time and really excited about Operator. I think that definitely could probably send you some great early kind of fund managers that I think would fit the bill. And I think it's great that there is an alternative to, uh, you know, there is one entity that I do know that's quite expensive and been around for a while. But uh, I think that being born in this, in this kind of, you know, digital first environment, like we built our fellowship for founders during 2020. And there was a lot of doubts on whether that, you know, that would work. And can you build a relationship? Can you scale it? And it's actually way better then like I, I would keep it. I mean, even if it's easier to travel, I will still keep it because you have this like global reach and it's like you want to pull up someone in London that's an expert in growth, just like they connect and then they're, they're there and they're sharing their knowledge. So I think that it's a testament to your timing also for what you're building. And, you know, couple that with like the growth of all these, you know, emerging managers and, and the asset class doing pretty well. I think you're, you're definitely onto something. Yeah, thanks, Brian. I think you're right. Like trying to pull up talent internationally, like it, it does make sense to try to keep it virtual. Um, I, I think that's a, a big piece. And we're actually accepting a few international managers into the third cohort. So we've started to think about more like how to, how to integrate that uh, going forward. So yeah, I, I appreciate uh, yeah, just the support. The questions were great. This was energizing. So uh, hopefully we uh, get another chance to to talk a little bit. Good, further. good. Thanks for coming on. It was a pleasure. And uh, yeah, we'll keep an eye on, on Operator and, uh, and anyone pick up the book uh, on Amazon. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Winter Mead, CEO and co-founder of Operator. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship program and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts for more talks with great founders and investors like him. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos la thumb. See you next week.